This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. My name is Jethro Jones. I am the host of the Transformative Principal podcast and the author of the book School X, which is all about redesigning your school for the people right in front of you. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and more. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. We're honored to give a shout out to our initial mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen more than $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, you should talk to them. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Greetings there, Jethro. Well, good morning. Here we are doing our new live broadcast, and this is actually being simulcast on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and I think that's it. <laughs> well, that's, that's quite a list. The technology is pretty impressive. And we're doing something a little bit different today. We are doing question and answers for our audience. 
And these materials are things that were drawn from audience responses that I got during some recent presentations in Hawaii and Alaska, all virtually, of course. And we've entered them onto the question and feedback page on cybertraps.com. You can see it there on the screen. Two ways to go to that particular page. You can click on the highlighted story on cybertraps.com, as is demonstrated here, or you can go to link.cybertraps.com backslash questions and feedback, and that'll take you right to it. Hey, that worked out pretty good for our first time, right? I yeah, mean, not that was pretty shabby. slick. <laughs> the, coming back to this view, I missed a spot, but you know what? I'm I'm impressed so far. So, um, so this thing we're using is called haps.tv and it's a live broadcast platform and it's actually pretty cool. I'm pretty impressed with it. So what I like about it is that it makes it so we can broadcast out to everywhere instead of uh, just to one place. And that makes it really nice. And there's some cool little features beyond, uh, um, you know, just uh, the video, you know, I can add in some, a couple things pull in our logo, make us look pretty official, <laughs> stuff like that. So well, anyway, as I, as I told you, I'm returning back to Brooklyn in a couple of months to resume living in New York City. And this just looks very ABC, CBS, NBC level stuff. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're ready to go. So this will be good. So let's get to our questions for today. Um, we are going to first talk about uh, extreme family beliefs from an educator perspective. And so the question that we have here is from, and our questions are going to be anonymous, from middle of the road. What are some things that educators can do if students' families have extreme beliefs? And I think this is such a great question. I'm so excited that somebody asked this because we're challenged with that every day. And it's more challenging, especially when those extreme beliefs are on the opposite side from what our own extreme beliefs are. So my first advice would be to recognize <laughs> that you have your own extreme beliefs and pay attention to that and recognize where your extreme beliefs are. What other thoughts do you have to add to this, Fred? Well, it's an interesting question, of course, as we've discussed on the podcast, Jethro, that I've been working on this new manuscript called The Rise of the Digital Mob. So I've been spending probably more time than is healthy yeah. looking at <laughs> online extremism and, and some of the things that have emerged. I, I, I think what I would say is that um, maybe I would rephrase what you were talking about a little bit in the sense that I would say that we're not necessarily going to assume that every educator has quote unquote extreme beliefs. I think what we do need to do, both as educators and as writers and, and parents, is to reflect on the beliefs we do have and mm -hmm. how those influence the way we look at the world and, and the attitudes that we have. I do think, having been immersed in this for the last three or four years, that when you look at the range of beliefs in American life, there are clearly things that we can put on the fringe on both ends, left mm -hmm. and right. And, and so it's not unfair to characterize certain beliefs as extreme. You know, the classic example right now, I have to be very blunt about it, are the QAnon conspiracy theories that suggest that there's a cabal of baby-eating politicians in Washington, D.C. And 
it from an educator point of view, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Jethro. From an educator point of view, the challenge is not necessarily to to try to change or eradicate any beliefs that your students might have. The question is whether or not their beliefs are somehow interfering with the operation of the classroom and, mm -hmm. and making it harder for the other students in the classroom to express their beliefs and learn the material that they need to, they need to learn. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is where I led off with teachers recognizing their own uh, extreme beliefs, because once you recognize that the things you're saying and doing as the teacher in the classroom could be inhibiting how kids are feeling about being free to express their beliefs, then that, that will help you see how other students' interactions are making other students feel like they can't express their beliefs. And so I think the first thing is recognizing that uh, there are beliefs that people are allowed to have and we need to recognize and honor that first and foremost. And so instead of trying to prove a student wrong or tell a student that they don't get it, I would instead focus on educating them and helping them question the beliefs that they, that they do have in a healthy and appropriate way. And depending on where those beliefs are coming from, it's, it's absolutely appropriate to do that because it's a healthy thing to be able to question the beliefs that you have, especially the things that you grow up with, that just because you happen to learn them in your home doesn't mean that they are 100% correct. And <laughs> we should be open to dialogue. And my, my frustration right now with how school is, is that it's not open to dialogue. Most of the time it is, this is what the school district believes and pushes, and that's what we all have to believe as well. And so, you know, especially with all this coronavirus stuff, we should be asking questions about what is going on, why we're making the decisions that we're making and be informed citizens rather than just listening to whatever thing we happen to see on social media, which, you know, we're on social media and we're always right. So <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with other people. <laughs> Well, that um, in the context of this question, I will say is extremely correct. So <laughs> yes. look, it's, it is in fact a, a real challenge. And I, I like the way you're framing this, that the objective of education is not to reinforce previously declared values. It's to give students the tools to understand the material they're being presented with, to examine it critically so that they can reach a reasoned decision about what is actually correct. And, and there, you know, it's, I think one of the things that's challenging about this, and this is absolutely a thread in my work, is that there's this tension between attitudes towards opinions or, or the formation of opinions and attitudes towards things that can be objectively analyzed and evaluated. And I think mm -hmm. that there's a lot of confusion about how those two things play out. And it's, you know, there's that old saying that you're absolutely entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. You know, and I think that this is this is the probably the single most important part of education is is helping children understand the difference between an opinion and a fact. 
You mm -hmm. may have opinions about how certain groups behave, but those are not necessarily facts about any given demographic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is, this is, I think, just an ongoing challenge. And as we've talked about with various guests, Jethro, we have, we, we have a real issue in the role that social media plays with respect to radicalization and these mm -hmm. extreme beliefs. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge that educators face today. Yeah. And so if I can offer two or three things that you can do, um, number one, instead of responding however you feel like you should respond, I would say when a student states an extreme belief, I would re request that you respond like this. Interesting. Tell me more about that. And give the student an opportunity to express themselves so that they can solidify the thing that they actually believe. Because once you say some things out loud, you recognize, wait a minute, that actually doesn't make sense. <laughs> and for a student to come to that conclusion on their own is a much better thing than for you to say, no, you're wrong. doesn't matter. So one, interesting, tell me more about that. Two, I appreciate your opinion, your belief, your stance, whatever it may be. But then ask for other students to be able to give their opinion as well and their experience as well and do the same thing with them and give space for kids to have this discussion amongst themselves. And it's OK if it gets a little heated. It's OK if people are passionate about it. What's not OK is if we silence someone because their beliefs don't align with ours, or if we silence them because their beliefs don't align with somebody else in the class, we need to nurture that. So uh, interesting. Tell me more. Anybody else have an opinion or thought about that? And the third thing is to try so hard as the teacher to not give a right answer. Let it hang in the air and let the students continue to question it and try to come to an understanding of it. And if you can let it go for a day and come back to it the next day, I promise there will be kids who will go and find the supporting evidence to say why a certain approach is the right one. And when kids do that, they learn how to learn in an amazing way that is really powerful. So interesting. Tell me more. Who else has an opinion about this? And don't give a definitive right answer. I think those three things would really help a lot. And the only fourth thing I'd add to that, Jethro, and, and, Believe me, I think the, the frontline experience you're offering is fantastic. But the fourth thing I would add is cite your sources. I think yes. that it's really, really important for students to learn as soon as they can that when they make a statement, they have an obligation to back it up with some source that can then be evaluated separately. So yeah. other students can say, well, that's actually a fake website <laughs> that is mm -hmm. made up to do whatever. And, and, and that, that kind of analysis is part of the, is part of the conversation, but that's great yes. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Citing your sources is very important. I'm so glad you made that point separately. Cause I think without that, we're going to have some trouble. So if you have <laughs> right. other comments, if you have other questions or something that you would like to um, add, please uh, let us know. Uh, you can leave a comment here at HAPS TV. Um, and we'll go on to our, uh, to our second question today, which is about the responsibility of school districts to monitor uh, usage after school. So this is from uh, anonymous overworked IT director. 
So <laughs> this says case law regarding educational forms, substantial disruptions of First Amendment rights are decades old. With the pivot to remote learning and the use of various learning management systems, what responsibility do schools have to monitor these educational forms outside traditional school hours? Well, it's, I mean, obviously that's primarily a legal question, uh, which is kind of up my alley. And, you know, there's a couple of different factors that play into this. Number one, if it is a system that the school has implemented as part of their response to the COVID pandemic, and it is a, an essential part of the remote or hybrid learning system, then the school arguably has a greater responsibility to monitor what's going on because they're actively requiring students to use it. So that I think is, is pretty clear cut. I think that a second thing that's layered on top of that, which really applies of course to all online electronic communication forms is whether or not the activity is having an impact on the school environment. And so this is one of the things that pops up when, you know, there's cyberbullying, for instance, on Facebook or on Snapchat or something like that. Those may be a little bit challenging for a school to monitor, as I'm sure you're well aware. Mm -hmm. But they a duty to investigate and a duty to talk to the participants does arise when that kind of um, interaction online starts to spill over to the school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of those things that is so challenging for schools to manage. I mean, that was what I experienced as a principal the last four years that I was a principal was that pretty much every single issue we had came from something that happened on social media. Almost nothing happened just within the school walls. So I think, I think you do have a responsibility to monitor, but also I think you have a greater responsibility to teach students appropriate behavior online and to do that as often as possible and use it as a learning opportunity whenever you can. These things happen. Kids do things. Adults do things. I mean, it's not like anybody is immune from it, right? <laughs> so, so because, uh, lips, yeah, yeah. So because everybody is interacting in this way, we have to pay attention and make some decisions to explicitly teach our kids what's right, what's not right, how to use it, how to not use it, and things that we can do to make it better for everybody. And so, yes, I think you still have to monitor, especially if you're providing those things. I mean, here's the crazy thing, Fred. Before the pandemic, um, I got in trouble in my school district because I let kids check out computers to take home. And they were like, well, we can't do that because we don't have a system in place and a process and all this. And I was right. like, you know what? We do have these things in place and we're making it work. We know who's got it. We know where their devices are. It's, it's not that big a deal. And they said, well, we can't continue doing that. And the reality is we still did it because kids needed devices at home because so much of our work was online and some kids didn't have access. And so we made that available. Then the pandemic hit and now everybody has a computer at home or a tablet or a Chromebook or whatever the case is. And we just never were really prepared for that, mm -hmm. but that's not going to roll back after the pandemic. It's, <laughs> it's going to continue, you know, of course. So we will. have to be prepared. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, in terms of answering this particular question, 
it's a great example of the need for schools and parents to form an effective partnership in terms of providing the uh, supervision and the protection for students. Because, you know, there's absolutely no question that if some kind of online interaction is spilling over into the school community, it's definitely a problem in the home community as well, mm -hmm. one way or the other. Either it's affecting a student in a particular way or there's some inter-household conflict that arises. So I think that, yes, I mean, the burden of the pandemic and remote learning is immense for educators. But from policy perspective, I think that the administrators and the school board should be working even more swiftly to educate parents about what the potential risks are and what their role is in minimizing the conflict that can arise online. It it shouldn't all be dumped on those poor IT guys for whom yeah. I have <laughs> endless <laughs> amounts of sympathy. Um, the, there's actually a very funny British television show called the IT crowd, the it yes. crowd. Yep. And, you know, it's just wonderful. It's very insightful. Um, but the point being that without really getting buy-in from parents about the behaviors the school expects, it's it's just really, really challenging for educators. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, not every parent is going to agree. Not every parent has equal resources in terms of their ability to supervise and so forth. But as a general rule, the more information you can put out there, you know, honestly, the better it is for everybody. And mm -hmm. along the way, some parents may reflect on their online behavior, which is not a bad thing either. Yeah, certainly. Um, and and I think that piece is really important too. You've got to recognize who is in your community and what their abilities and skills are, and then make sure you're doing your best to serve those individual people and not just saying, well, this is how we're going to do it for everybody. And, you know, the mom who works two jobs in a single and the older sibling is babysitting, you know, we're not going to worry about that because that's an outlier. But the reality is, is you have to pay attention to everybody's individual sure. needs. And in a situation like that, of course, you know, one of the potential benefits is that, you know, the, the older child, and actually I did a lot of this because my siblings are all about five years apart. So mm -hmm. my younger sister is 15 years younger than I am, which is, I'm sure you can realize wound up with a, yeah. you know, giving me a fair amount of babysitting experience. Yeah. But look, you, you know, you can reach out to those households and give those older students a chance as well to educate themselves about what some of these issues are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I want to go to uh, just remind everybody how you can get the um, get your question submitted here. We're going to do this on the first uh, Monday of every month. And so if you go to cybertraps.com uh, and click on this button over here on the right, this will give you the question and answers link. And uh, also you can go to this web address that is going to be on the screen here, link.cybertraps.com slash questions and feedback. And that will be a great way for you to, um, to put your question in and, and get our feedback on that. Uh, our next question comes from a teacher who is quote, feeling not anonymous. And this relates to teacher privacy in small communities. 
How can teachers deal with all the gray areas in privacy, especially in Alaska, where so many people live in small communities where everyone knows each other? And trust me, this is not just Alaska, but all <laughs> over the place, there are small communities. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever mentioned it to you, Jethro, but over the course of my lecturing career, I've hit 48 out of the 50 states. And I will tell you that just about every state has significant rural areas where this is an issue. Yes. Um, but it was really driven home to me when I started going up to Alaska. I think my first visit up there was probably 2013, 2014, something like that. And a couple of years later, I got invited by uh, Keith Zamudio, uh, Cordova's IT director, to do some lectures on what would you guys call it? The milk run along uh, uh -huh, south, the milk run. southern yep. Alaska <laughs> Airlines uh uh, route. And so I went to a couple of these communities that, you know, for someone from the lower 48 just makes you laugh that you really literally can't drive to them. Yeah. There's no road to these communities, which just is a little mind blowing. But you're talking about a school in a community of 200 people. So you've mm -hmm. maybe got what, 35, 40 students in the entire K-12 system. And so, yeah, everybody knows everyone else. And this was a question that came up year after year. You know, what do I do with my Facebook account? You know, I'm actually the aunt of three students in the classroom or, mm -hmm. you know, I've been friends with this family since the kids were born, literally. And so, you know, that changes the dynamic a little bit compared to, say, an East Coast high school with, you know, 2,000 kids in it. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer, I'm not sure that there's a perfect answer, but the answer that I came up with for these folks is that we, even within the dynamic of a small community, once a child becomes a student of yours in that school, that there's a, there's a need both pedagogically and professionally to try to maintain as much distance as possible, at least electronically, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like you're not going to go over to the house for dinner and so forth, but do you really need that child or even potentially the child's parents seeing your online activity when there's this other relationship of being an educator? Yeah, that is definitely challenging. And I would I would say in my experience, having worked in a small town in Alaska specifically, that the feeling of anonymity goes away. Whereas when I was in a big district with, you know, 90,000 students down in the lower 48, then I, the chances of me running into my students were very small because, or the, them knowing much about me were very small because there just wasn't an option, an opportunity for us to interact in any meaningful way outside of school. In small communities, the school really is the community center. And so everything is happening at the school. And as it relates to the school, I mean, it's just, it's always there. So first and foremost, I think what you said about maintaining some distance is good. Um, there are times when that is impossible and you just have to recognize that. Right. Uh, and if you're a member of that community already, it, then it's a little bit different than if you're an outsider coming in. And so if you come into a community with 200 people in the community, 
they already know each other and you are this big unknown entity and they're going to try to find out who, who you are to see how well you'll fit in with the community. And in, you know, there's some awkwardness that can go along with that. Um, and there's some challenges that can go along with that, but I would definitely say, think about what's on your, on your social media and what you've put on there and what you could, you know, what you could have their way in the past and think about what that looks like and how that community will react to it. And there's so many things that you don't know going into that kind of a community where you really need to think about what, how other people could perceive it. Mm. And in the lower 48 with big communities, it, it may not matter that much, but it will matter to a small community like that. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought um, as much about the the entry into that community and the role that social media would play. But as you were speaking, Jethro, one of the things that occurred to me was that, you know, in a way, for people who live in really small communities where everybody does know each other per force because there's no way to avoid it, it's worth thinking about whether or not you want to make less use of social media specifically to help carve, help yourself carve out some space that is yours, that, that you're not sharing endless amounts of information with people who have known you for decades and Mm -hmm. see you at the grocery store and so forth. I mean, again, flipping it down to the bigger communities, even Anchorage or Juneau, which you know are, are reasonably sized cities, there's there's a little bit more of a sense of anonymity that you can post on social media. And yes, it may be seen by people who know you, but the bulk of it will be seen by people who have no idea who you are. And it won't matter mm-hmm. as much. But in small communities, I think that there's a premium on really reflecting on what the impact of your social media use can be, both mm-hmm. in terms of your privacy and in terms of your ability to deal with the folks around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would also say as as an, a piece of advice is get involved in the community and be active in the community because they're going to be talking about you anyway. You might as well be there part of the conversation, <laughs> getting them to allowing them to know you in in a different way. Oh, that um, is a cold, frank assessment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, you know, but yeah. that's that's just the way it is. When you're in a position of power as an educator in a small community, you're going to be a topic of conversation. And if people know you, they'll be less likely to judge you harshly. If people don't know you, they'll assume your intent and assume your motives. And it's not fair, but that's the reality of the world that we live in. And so get to know them and participate and and be part of the community as much as you can, as much as you're comfortable, because it's only going to build bridges in in that regard, which is what you need when you're in a small community, because you have to rely on everybody that's there. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, the smallest community I've lived in was... Uh, 17,000 people. I grew up in a town in eastern Massachusetts, and it was actually, population-wise, one of the smallest communities in that area. But of course, it's eastern Massachusetts, so it's, you know, there's, it doesn't have the feel of a small town the way, you know, some of the more rural spots Mm -hmm. do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, I think our last question that we'll get to today is around TikTok and teachers, and this question comes from, but that video aligns to my content. (laughs) <laughs> what are your thoughts on teaching on teachers using TikTok to show lessons and content? 
Well, if if that is in fact where we put the big fat period at the end of the sentence, then probably <laughs> not too much of a problem per se, right? I mean, for those who don't know, TikTok is you know the the latest flavor of the month in terms of video social media, you know, where you have various, I mean, you can record yourself doing anything and then set it to music. And some of the, some of the content can get pretty amazing in terms of what people do. I think that this is a particularly interesting question because it requires us to think about what the motivation is of the educator in using this. Right. So, you know, one of the early, um, celebrity teachers, if you will, was uh, this chemistry teacher. And I don't actually have the notes in front of me right now uh, for what his handle is. But if you do a, a Google search or a Bing search for chemistry teacher TikTok, it's very easy to find. Guy has hundreds of thousands of views. And I've watched some of them and they're really cool, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of illustrating the chemical processes. And of course, he does kind of a lot of flashy stuff, you know, making various compounds. And basically, there's no intrinsic harm in that. But there are some spinoff effects that start to get interesting, right? So here's this guy and Jethro, I'd be interested to hear you talk about this. Here's this guy who now is a teaching celebrity based mm -hmm. around his TikTok videos. And I can't help but think that that changes the colleague dynamic in some ways. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And one of the unfortunate things about education is that as people get out in front of others, then uh, people quickly go to chop their heads off and vilify them <laughs> in their right. community and in their school. And that doesn't happen everywhere. And it's not like that everywhere. But that does happen a lot because teachers are not designed to be the one who sticks out in the crowd. And those who are out there, you know, that that phrase, you can never be a prophet in your own country. That is that is very uh, applicable in my experience in education. And so so you need to be aware of that. Number one. Uh, number two, one of the other spinoff things is that you're introducing a tool to your or a or an app to your students that is addictive in nature, that mm -hmm. is something that is a, uh, a time waster by nature to get them to focus on that. And whether or not you intend to or mean to, you're still exposing them to a lot of stuff that, that they may not be prepared for to see on there. And, well, and that and is an issue you need. Right. Yeah. I was going to, sorry to step okay. all over that, but, but no, this is really resonant because TikTok is, has, has a fairly serious pornography problem, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the content that is available on it. And even if it's not kind of blatant, it's still findable. And for educators, one of the things to think about with any social media platform is what is the, the what is the community like? What is kind of the um, milieu of the of the app? How do people act on it? And the thing about TikTok is that you know, particularly with the general categories of music that are available, there there is a real emphasis on sexualization, and mm -hmm. and so it's I think a temptation to be drawn into that. 
and now I'm not jumping on chemistry guy. None of that is particularly salacious. Yeah, chemistry but... teacher Phil, by the way. <laughs> oh, and good job. Chemistry well, teacher Phil, if you want to come and uh, have this discussion with us and tell us your experience, <laughs> we'd be happy to have you. And we'd even let you put clips on TikTok if you'd like. We we will totally <laughs> we will totally reach out to chemistry guy Phil. Um, but I you know I think that you have to understand the lure of social media in terms of changing your behavior as an educator. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then one other thing that pops up, I, you know, we've talked a lot about the model code of ethics for educators. And one of the challenges that administrators face is in their evaluation of educators, right? And if you've got an educator who is very forward looking, using the latest apps, uh, developing new and kind of innovative ways to get kids engaged, aren't you going to see them as more worthy of promotion, raises, whatever? And so there's there's kind of a, an equity issue there in terms of who's using technology and how it affects their careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I have never thought of it like that, but I I think most people certainly would not say that those people are more worthy of praise and promotion and raises. I just don't <laughs> think that educators think that way. As much well, as to me that makes sense, but it, yeah. I don't think that that's the reality, unfortunately. Well, that's interesting, you know, because you obviously have the direct experience. The The feedback that I had gotten actually from one of our early guests, Troy Hutchings, was that um, the way this sometimes plays out is that teachers who are very active on social media um, attract a lot of attention from parents. And mm -hmm. so the parents want these teachers to be rewarded because they're providing more openness, more engagement, so on and so forth. And a lot of times there isn't the reflection on what the potential risks are in mm -hmm. terms of direct messaging, exposure to bad content, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And I can see how the, the teachers, especially of chemistry teacher, Phil would say, this is, are the parents of the students in chemistry teacher Phil's class would say, this is great. I love that I can see what's going on in my student's classroom in an engaging and entertaining way, which I think that that really is a, a key point here is that if you are being public about what you're teaching in an engaging and entertaining way, then people will be more drawn to that and will enjoy that opportunity um, a little bit more. And I think that's something to, to think about as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and of course, you and I are both very uh, technology positive on this uh -huh. show, even though, we, we, even though it's the Cyber Traps podcast. But I think that, you know, when people are trying to introduce new technology, the transparency is not just about the um, material that's being shown. It's about the process by which that app gets introduced to the classroom. So there need to be conversations with the the overworked IT guys, the overworked administrators about what's going to be used. And you also need to reflect on some of the things I talk about in Cyber Traps for Educators, like accidental FERPA violations or mm -hmm. things like that, because we can get so enthusiastic about using technology that we don't think these things through. And this is exactly what we're trying to accomplish here. Yeah. And the stark reality is that there's a very good chance that your your videos won't even be accessible at school. 
And so for kids who don't have access outside of school, you're leaving out a whole group of students as well. But, you know, the, the, that's a really good point, Jethro. Yeah. The IT department may not want to open up TikTok so kids can see your videos for fear of all the other things that are on there. And so having good conversations about this from the beginning with your um, administration IT department is, is really valuable as well. And uh, in closing here, as we get ready to wrap up, just want to share that again, if you want to leave a question for us to, to answer next time, go to cybertraps.com and there on the front page, there's that, uh, column over on the right that will allow you to leave your questions and answers. And we want to thank the people who submitted questions this week. Uh, it was fantastic. We enjoyed talking about it. If you have feedback or think we were wrong on something, we'd love to hear about it. Just go to cybertraps.com uh, slash, I think this is episode 22. Is that right? 20, I think. Oh, phew. I was going to say. <laughs> but still, 20 is not too bad. I'm pretty pleased with that. Yeah, so go ahead and go to cybertraps.com slash 20 and leave us a comment. Uh, we'd love to to get feedback and hear if you think we were way off base on something and, and give us your feedback. We appreciate you joining us today. All righty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and challenges Along the way, we'll talk with our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. Help people share the show with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. So please leave us a rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate you joining us today and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE.